Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Stuart, Sean, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Great to connect. Likewise. Friday, what are we here? The 23rd? Of June, the dog days of summer lie ahead. Parliament has adjourned. So let's talk a bit about uh, what's happened in Ottawa this week, and particularly the uh, passage of Bill C-18. Final few days in the Senate, then off to royal assent, a big rework potentially of the media landscape in Canada. So let's dig into that and prognosticate a bit about what could happen in terms of the federal scene in Ottawa and the barbecue circuit this summer as parties kind of reposition for the fall. And then the back half of the show, let's talk about a fateful trip by that certain submersible Ocean's Gate to the bottom of the Atlantic and uh, an end to five lives, which um, I've got a particular take on and I want your view guys. But Let's start with the end of parliament, specifically Bill C-18, which is the legislation that will compel Meta uh, and Google to subsidize Canadian news production in Canada. I think this was, Stuart, the big legislative story of the end of this session, the adjournment of parliament. Tell us where we're at right now and uh, what's likely to happen next with Bill C-18. Yeah, we are right now in that kind of weird phase where we're not totally sure um, because the tech companies have made a lot of threats about this and you, know, you can call them threats or you can make them, you can call them just rational responses to, you know, this legislation and how it affects them. So the bill at this point will, for Google and Facebook, if they have links to journalistic content on their platforms, they will then have to pay for that. They'll have to pay those companies either through the mechanism in the bill or through some kind of collective bargaining agreement that they come up with. Um, so Facebook has very, um, I think, clearly said they're just going to bail. They're going to get out of news. And, you know, the more I talk to people who know about this, the more I think Facebook is not bluffing. Um, I think there was a sense when this a similar bill happened in Australia that they were bluffing and maybe they were hoping for a better deal. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Facebook just says, you know what, news is now too much trouble. It's not enough value for us. Um, so we're going to get out of it. Um, Google is more interesting because it is a big part of what they do. Um, and I think what you'll see now is we've had emergency meetings last night with the tech companies and the minister. Um, you might see some kind of movement on collective bargaining. But I think through the summer, we'll probably see you know, just like a union uh, negotiation over a contract, it takes some time. You hear a lot of bluffing, you hear a lot of rhetoric. Um, and I think that's what we're in for now. A part of what Stuart is getting at there uh, is bigger than this particular piece of legislation. Um, it is the tendency in Ottawa to pass um, laws that are general in nature. They're amorphous, they're imprecise. Um, and then effectively to legislate via regulation, 
um, um, in the aftermath of the law. So the law, you know, it's interesting if you think about it at kind of a conceptual level, government goes to parliament to secure parliament's authority to then essentially legislate by regulation, uh, which doesn't require uh, uh, parliament's consent. But, you know, that's probably a conversation for another day. The point is, I think what Stuart is getting at in a way is Meta's seems prepared to get out of this business now full stop it doesn't it doesn't need to wait to see uh what the accompanying regulations say or do google um in part because news is more core to its business and disentangling news from the google platform may be more complicated seems prepared to wait and see uh what the how the regulations manifest themselves and if there is um any movement on the part of the government in the regulation that tilts in the direction of of uh, Google and its interests. I'll just say, guys, I don't really understand a political scenario where that happens. You know, the government has taken a maximalist approach with the legislation and its rhetoric. Uh, I'm thinking of the prime minister himself, um, the minister responsible to then water down the legislation after kind of taking the political temperature up to 100 um, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, um, so I think in that sense, we're likely to see regulation sometime over the coming months, but I don't think it's going to fundamentally change uh, what is set out in this legislation, which is a government mandate on private companies to enter into contracts uh, with news providers to provide as much as 30% of newsroom costs. It's a I don't think we can overstate how radical this idea is. And as you said, Rudyard, um, it's impact for the media landscape in Canada. Yeah, I agree with you, Sean. It'd be really weird if the rumors are true that Google's trying to negotiate with the government the ability to reach its own agreements with the major news providers and then in effect say, well, you don't need us to be encompassed in the legislation because we're effectively doing what we were doing, but we're doing it through our own private negotiations. I mean, why the heck did we have the act in the first place? Why have we gone through all this? Why is Meta, in a sense, been put into a position, pushed into a corner where they're now going to leave news? It just would seem like, um, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But Stuart, let me come to you as the one kind of career journalist on this panel. How do you feel about this? And how how are your colleagues feeling about this idea that if you add the 30% subsidy that could come through Bill C-18 to the roughly you know 20% or so subsidy that already exists through tax credits and other government supports for news content generation in newsrooms across Canada, we could, by the end of this year, have a scenario in Canada where 50% of news and journalism, including at the CBC, bizarrely, is funded by big tech and big government. How does that make you feel like in terms of your role of holding power to account, having hopefully a perception on the part of the public that you are independent, that we can trust what you're going to say as a credentialed journalist, and you're not going to be influenced by the people now who are going to be paying, not in your case at the Hub, because we're in a, a totally different uh, kind of structure and regime. We're not part of these subsidies at this moment. But for all your colleagues, what the heck are they going to do uh, as journalists when half of their salaries are paid for, again, by big government and big tech? 
Yeah. I, I, so I got into journalism about 13 years ago and it occurred to me the other day, there were a lot more sort of principled stands about this stuff 13 years ago when you could see that the model was shaky, but journalists could still convince themselves that, you know, the executives were screwing up and if they weren't putting money into quality, that's the reason that we weren't doing well. It's become clear that the model is entirely broken, that the, the model that sustains journalism is just done. And I, as much as I hate this, I mean, that's my visceral feeling is that it's just appalling. Um, even, even with the big tech stuff, I think that probably annoys me more, actually, because these are just massive corporations that really need to be held accountable. And to the extent that we can do that, maybe it happens less. You, there's a lot of journalists on the Hill covering the government. Not as many as there used to be, but there still is a lot there. Um, so the visceral reaction is that it's not a good thing. The other part, though, is that, you know, just take a look at the post-media balance sheet. Uh, you know, look at how uh, newspapers across North America have just been collapsing. And um, the thing that I try to keep in my mind is that something will have to fix this. Um, something has to happen. And, you know, we have a piece from Peter Menzies this week sort of laying out some different things here and there. Um, yeah. I have trouble with that sort of kaleidoscope idea that we'll have Stuart, 12 different let, policy implements. Yeah, let me try an, one idea on you, because I, I agree that there is a problem here and public policy is meant to address problems. But why didn't we just say, look, there's all kinds of goods in society that don't function uh, in the marketplace. There just simply isn't the demand to create the income streams and the basis to allow, let's say, opera to exist as a an entity in Canada without charitable status, significant subsidies, and so on and so on. We much of our healthcare system, we treat the same way. We say that this is a charity, that it is funded by people and by government, and it's not expected to be for profit, uh a, in a sense, a commercial enterprise. Why couldn't we just say, let's rip the Band-Aid off? All this smoke and mirrors of getting, you know, labor tax credits and big tech paying into funds to compensate for links. All of this is just a delaying tactic to the place we're ultimately going, which is that, yes, journalism is a public good. It's a public service. And let's just think of it as like a charity. Think of it like the opera, Stuart. You, you, I'm sure would be an amazing member of the Toronto Opera Company's chorus line. Um, why not? Like, do people in your profession rebel against that? Is there, like, do journalists somehow want to be seen as I don't know, um, you know, ink-stained wretches who are, you know, wrestling with the market and the economy, and they're being validated and rewarded because people are buying their products and they're part of these business enterprises. Why don't we just get rid of all that, blow it all off, move on to a new model? Yeah. If I were guessing, I'd say that's where we're heading. I'd say 10 years from now, that might be a prophetic um, line of thinking. But the, the trouble we have right now is that, you know, partly through failures in journalism, partly just through the nature of our politics, it's a really polarizing thing. And the temptation for the Conservative Party to run against the CBC is, you know, it, it's obvious. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Um, there's a big part of the country that doesn't feel represented by the CBC. And the trouble you'll always have is exactly what you said, that um, as much as journalism used to be sort of a, you know, all the different classes of people were part of it 50 years ago. Now it's credentialed people who went to university. It's a certain type of person. 
the funny thing on the hill is you have all these people who have advanced degrees trying to capture the spirit of the ink stained wretch and be like skeptical and cynical and it doesn't quite land but like that is a type of person in journalism now and the trouble that we'll have as an industry is that you have to represent everyone whether that's gender um whether that is ethnic groups whether that is um education these things all matter and if people don't feel like they're represented by the media the case for government funding just goes right out the window this is an interesting conversation but it seems to me we have to address the elephant in the room uh which is that we're interested parties to this conversation you know three years ago we took the risk of establishing uh, an organization that sort of sits at the nexus between the media and public policy and um we we pursued a different business model that relies on a combination of philanthropic support and own source revenue and we thought this may represent a a part of the solution to some of the conundrums that you're talking about. And in three years, I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. We have something like two and a half million people on, uh, on our reading our, our content each year. Um, those numbers continue to grow. Our, our newsletter goes out to thousands and thousands of people each day. And we've been able to do that guys without subsidies uh, in part because we've been able to rely on platforms like Facebook uh, to discover and reach our audiences. And I gotta say, I, I, a, lot, a lot of times for me, public policy is an intellectual exercise. Um, right. um, this is, this this is, is personal. Close, this is <laughs> close to home. Uh, policymakers in Ottawa have effectively chosen to trade off the interests of organizations like the Hub uh, for the legacy players who've been uh, lobbying, call it what it is, media organizations using their editorial pages to lobby uh, for the government to effectively mandate private corporations to give them money. Um, and if the result of this is we, our links are removed from uh, Facebook, um, um, it is going to have a material impact on us. And you know, even if people don't have sympathy for us, um, understand what that means for other organizations like ours that are um, going through an iterative process of experimentation and innovation to figure out how to provide high quality news content in the uh, economic environment that uh, Stuart is talking about. I think this is a, um, a, a really bad case of policymakers putting a stick in the spokes of innovation and preferencing incumbents. Um, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised. That's a subject we talk a lot about on this show, whether it's banking and telecoms and whatever. And I guess we can now add big media uh, to the list of government preferenced oligopolies in our economy and society. Yeah. And can you imagine if they go ahead and uh, they allow Google to opt out of the act by cutting private deals? Well, guess who Google's going to cut private deals with? They're going to cut private deals with the CBC, with Global News, with the Goldman Mail, they're not knocking on the door of the hubs. <laughs> you know, hey, guys, uh, you know, how can we, uh, you know, compensate you here for what we really appreciate, actually, which is Google News regularly picking up our content and amplifying it. Um, I don't know, guys, I just finally I just get back to a point where I think um, we have there's just there's so much uh, so many kind of encumbrances, you know, that we have these legacy players, we have these 
I, I think this vanity in the industry, especially amongst those bigger players, that they're somehow, you know, these macho businesses that are driving ROI and profit and other things. When in fact, you know, excuse my French, but SHIT happens. Okay. Businesses go in and out of business. Industries rise and fall. And what I don't like about this moment is this, this calcification, this crystallization of some idealization, and I want your view on this, Stuart, but an idealization of the media that existed decades ago. Yes. Maybe it never even was there. Yes. And we're trying so desperately to hold on to it that we're crushing the innovation in the moment. We're engaging in all this like useless complexity. And what we should just do is blow the whole thing up and see what comes out the other side. Cause I'm optimistic. I see all kinds of new startups and solutions and approaches to sharing news and information and content. And to think that the country is gonna rise and fall on whether I get up in the morning and have a copy of my national post. I mean, again, I like the paper, I like the people involved with it, but the country doesn't live and die on post media or the Globe and Mail or even frankly on the CBC. This is just hubris, Stuart. It's just the hubris of an industry that thinks somehow that it's so exceptional, so irreplaceable, so essential to our society and our democracy. And I just don't buy it. I think it's PR. I think it's bump. I think it's self-dealing. I don't know. Maybe you feel otherwise. Yeah. I So I, I, I remember I started the Edmonton Journal and people would tell me about the glory days and they would tell me things like, yeah, you know, back in the 90s, we would send a reporter from Edmonton with a photographer to Paris Fashion Week. And you think, was that really necessary? Is that the kind of thing that we're <laughs> we're trying to fund here? So there is something between that era of, you know, ridiculous profit and excess at newspapers and where we're at now. I think there is something that we need um, in terms of accountability on our democratic institutions. Um the question of where that is, I think, is an open question. That's why we have to discuss this now as the government tries to legislate. Um, but you're right. The the other part, too, is there's an issue of magnitude, but also about how we deliver that news. And that is also an open question, because if you are post-media, you're still running newspapers. You're, they're still printing a newspaper every night or you know four, four or five times a week. So there's all these other costs that are involved that aren't necessarily things we should be funding in the future. So all this stuff, how journalism happens and how much of it happens is a question we decide as Canadians. This isn't something for Pablo Rodriguez to decide. I think it's a political discussion. Yeah. Maybe, can I just, before we wrap up and move on to uh, another subject, let me just say the other thing that has to be said is that this legislation passed on a basically a, a partisan line vote. Um, you mentioned, Rudyard, at the outset, that when you stack this legislation on top of existing public subsidies, um, newsrooms can be receiving as much as 50% of their overall costs or having 50% of their raw costs covered through this combination of direct- Including the CBC, which is going to get the, the billion dollar plus subsidy on top of all this other stuff. Well, not yes. the labor tax credits, I don't think, but on top of the, you know, the Google money, like it's just- I don't and I, but I, I would just say I think the government. Uh, it may feel in the short term like this is helpful for the industry, but I think in the medium and long term it is really harmful. Just think about it, guys. We're going to go into the next election, um, in which there, it's just it's incontrovertible that 
uh, two of the major parties support yeah. the regime and one of them doesn't. Um, and do you don't think that that's going to manifest itself in the election? Do you think that Pierre Polyev isn't going to mention that when he gets questions in scrums that he doesn't like? Is this not going to be at the backdrop of uh, of the next election campaign? And um, if trust in media is already um, stagnant or declining, uh, a, an environment in which uh, we have a political fissure on whether the state should subsidize as much as 50% of the cost of journalism, it just seems to me is ultimately going to further deteriorate trust. Um, and I, you know, mm -hmm. even if in the short term, these subsidies solve a problem for you, I think it creates a, a, a bigger one over the long term. Yeah, my final thought on this is, again, I just think there's a fundamental conceit here on the part of government and in this, the spirit of this legislation and it's the following. It's that people won't want to be informed. Regardless of what systems or policies we put into place, if Google or Facebook stop sharing news, people still want to know what's happening. Like we're not just like dumb, you know, uh, I don't know, pick your analogy, bowls of pudding or something sitting there uh, uninterested in our local communities, in politics, in society. Like we are social animals. We are, as the ancients called us, zoopharmacon, political animals, okay? We are going to find ways to seek out information, to be informed about the issues that we care about. And again, I just go back to it. Like, why do we automatically assume that all these legacy media are just so essential to democracy? I just don't know what the proof point is. I. I don't know what the logical chain of reasoning that makes you end up with the assumption that if you take these things away, everyone's just going to be lobotomized sitting around their homes, um, you know, playing on their playstations. That's a really cynical, depressing view of society and of your citizens when you are the government. I think people have agency. I think people want to empower themselves with information. I think they will seek out information and I'm confident that there will be market opportunities for groups and organizations like there has been for the hub for the last two and a half years to, to meet that need. But, but if we hold on and we don't allow for change and we freeze everything in place and we extort, you know, companies to basically solve you know, in really awkward and cumbersome ways for public goods, which we've assumed a priority can only be solved by government, we're going to end up as we are with a whole bunch of suboptimal outcomes. Um, let's take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk Oceansgate. Uh, this is the company that uh, sent a submersible with five people uh, down to the Titanic this week, and it has uh, imploded uh, on the bottom of the sea after a massive rescue effort. What have we learned uh, out of this tragedy? I've got some views, and I want the Hub Roundtable to weigh in. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the, the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050. 
and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Stuart Thompson, our Editor-at-Chief. Um, okay, guys, it might be a little bit of a head-scratcher for some audience members to think, well, why are these guys talking about Oceansgate and submersibles? What is the public policy connection to this? <laughs> well, let me try a, a, a line of argument on you, Sean. I want you to react to this. Um, to me, there's something fascinating here about Ocean's Gate 100 years after the sinking of the Titanic. The Titanic sunk uh, for reasons related, as I think historians and others explained, the kind of hubris of its age, that age of technological prowess in the early 20th century, this idea that it had, had these bulkheads that would ensure that it could never sink because it could never uh, take on enough water to plunge to the bottom of the ocean. Sure enough, the Titanic sunk, massive loss of life. Ocean Gate, 100 years later, comes along and says, you know, we're so innovative and we're just so amazing at what we do that we're just gonna forego all safety certifications. Um, we're gonna forego warnings from experts in our own field, even a, a lawsuit uh, launched by one of our own staff members. And we're gonna create this submersible made out of carbon fiber, a completely unproven material for deep sea uh, exploration. And we're going to attach a PlayStation uh, joystick to it. And we're going to take people down, um, you know, uh, so deep into the sea that the amount of weight on top of our submersible is going to be equal to a Empire States building made out of lead. And just as an added plus, we're going to do this all as a for-profit corporation, make a shit ton of money, excuse me, did I just say that? An S-I-H-T ton of money. Um, and uh, we'll do this all off sea in the international oceans and uh, you know, millionaires will flock to our doors and then something goes wrong. And what happens, Sean? Well, we have to launch a rescue at public cost, a public expenditure, probably to the tune now of tens of millions of dollars to bail out this disaster, which was the inherent making of Ocean's Gate and its, you know, deluded CEO, its dangerous CEO that I think tragically has killed these four other people. Sean, isn't this just a, a moment of just a distillation of the hubris, the decadence uh, just an, an, a snapshot of so much of what is wrong with our society in, you know, uh, the opening decades of the 21st century. I know that's like a grand narrative, but to me, it's like, it's almost as symbolic as the sinking of the Titanic itself. It says something so essential about this moment that we're in. Yeah, that's a, that's a compelling argument. Um, particularly the, a private benefit public cost dynamic, right? Um, you know, I, I think you have a, 
a really strong argument there that one of the reasons we expect companies and, and individuals to comply with regulations and so on is to try to close the gap between private benefit and, and public cost. So as you say, in this case, the company chose to ignore or neglect a lot of these safety requirements. Um, and in the end, we had to collectively uh, subsidize the company through this uh, massive international search. Um, on the other hand, I, one thing I've thought a lot about in the past day or so, because of course there's been a lot of voices on the television talking about the need for new and different regulation and and so on, is I do think at like some civilization level, there is a risk that uh, I think what some have called safetyism becomes a a barrier to progress. You know, Charles Murray, the American sociologist that uh, that our, many of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, at one point in his career, wrote about the Apollo program. Um, and one of the arguments he makes, which really resonated with me, is that the day of the first launch, um, the weather conditions were really poor. And it's almost certain that in 2023, given our tendency towards safetyism, um, uh, the, the mission wouldn't have happened. Um, and so... I guess that's a long way of saying, yes, of course, we need companies to comply with regulations and so on. Um, but I do worry that in the face of these types of of extraordinary events, we see a kind of ratcheting of regulation and, and rules and safety precautions and all the rest. And they come with opportunity costs. They come with um, progress that doesn't materialize um, because we've We've chosen we've chosen to kind of preference safety over uh, over risk taking and the progress that can come from that. Sean, so yeah, let me come to Stuart on this because I think one hundred percent you're right. But here's the thing: I these guys they can go jump in their carbon fiber tube and go down whatever it is three miles or something and take Instagram pictures of a graveyard and pay a quarter of a million dollars for the luxury. I mean, if if you're that dumb. I guess you're that dumb. Um, and do that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Literally blow blow your brains out. Um, but, you know, don't expect the socialization of your risk. Like, don't expect this massive response to try to respond to your insanity. So, all, all right, you want to create some radical new technology to go into the deep seas? do it but why the heck Stuart? did it seems like this week we just instinctively respond to this thing with this like massive like seven ships multiple planes flying from the uh royal air force in in the uk the united states canada i mean there must have been like tens of thousands of liters of jet fuel and diesel and it just seems so out of it just seems so unconscious it's like this is privatizing profit and socializing risk. And I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it in the banking sector. I'm sick of it in social media. I'm sick of it in whole swaths of our society where our immediate reaction is, okay, guys, innovate, scrap regulations, you know, no liabilities, go do all this amazing stuff. And then if anything goes wrong, John and Jane Q public are there with the checkbook to try and bail you out. 
why the heck do we do this? Why don't we just say, great, innovate on your own, no safety rope, anything goes wrong, you have to indemnify yourself. And if you cause harm to others in society, you have to indemnify society. Yeah, I, my initial instinct was kind of pride that we were doing this. And then, you know, you read about what happens in Nepal when you get stuck on Everest. <laughs> they don't give a crap about you and you're on your own. And I, I don't blame them for that, actually, because that it's getting ridiculous, the amount of people on Mount Everest, the amount of people dying up there and getting into trouble. You wouldn't expect a country to have to, you know, take on that kind of a burden. And there is something a little weird about this. Anyone who's backpacked, you know, in the Rockies, when I lived in Alberta, I would go out there. And when I, I actually worked um, in the Lake District in England for a summer, and when somebody gets into trouble, it's like, you know, search parties and helicopters. And I, when I was in the mountains, you know, in uh, Jasper alone, thinking about, you know, what happened if I rolled my ankle? You know, I, I broke my ankle in uh, Ottawa, just falling off a curb. These things happen. And then you think about the amount of resources that would be spent on my stupid, you know, injury in the mountains. It's just a little bit uh, overwhelming. So it is a strange thing. Um, I actually, it doesn't really bother me at such a visceral level um, because I kind of agree with Sean that we have lost that spirit. And I think I really got into this mindset during the pandemic that, you know, my friend Kaylin Ford will, she's hopefully going to write this piece for us, but she'll tell you about the distance that we've gotten from death, just death in general. It doesn't enter our lives anymore. And during or the risk, pandemic, we, clearly these people had no perception of risk or understanding of risk. But Sean, just to push back at you, I mean, you're basically saying the innovators uh, are okay to innovate, but then they also get the nanny state when they we need and want it. Like, come on, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be some Peter Thiel, ultra libertarian, no state, no government, but then, whoa, something goes wrong. You know, bring in the cavalry, bring in the public checkbook, and everybody gets bailed out, just like Silicon Valley Bank, where I'm sure Peter Thiel had a lot of his money invested. I mean, it's just, it's just plutocracy. It's just, you know, capital is power. I'm sounding like the Marxist today, but <laughs> I mean, it, it the whole thing just makes me think it's just a giant game. And, and again, we're the suckers stuck with the tab. Yeah, I guess the, the lesson from today's conversation is uh, whether you're an innovator or or a, a stagnant, uh, you know, stuck in stagnation, uh, the government will be there one way or the other, whether you're running a host media or you're running Oceangate. Um, I, I would just say, you know, another subject that we've talked a lot about on this podcast is um, is the growing tendency for our economy to be kind of rooted in the non-physical world um, where there it tends to be less risk and that we've seen stalled progress in the physical parts of the economy, energy, transportation, uh, medicine, etc. cetera, um, areas where there's a lot of regulation because there comes a lot of risk. Um, and I guess what, what you're hearing from me, I hope is not a call for bailing out innovators, but, but I think not succumbing to safetyism, um, because I do think that uh, if we have an economy that tilts in favor of the non-physical versus the physical, um, we're all going to be kind of working in ones and zeros. And I'm, I'm not sure 
the evidence of the past 20 years is that's actually how you move a civilization forward. Um, and, and in that sense, um, as tragic and regrettable as this story is, at like some level, I'm admire the the inherent kind of risk taking that um, that this project represented. Let's give you the final words, Stuart. So it sounds like Sean is going to take up the Spear family checkbook when Richard Branson is trapped in a low Earth <laughs> orbit, uh, unable to reenter. We're going to deploy NASA, the Russians. Everybody's going to get up there. Couple billion dollar SNR search and rescue in low orbit, courtesy of the Spear household checkbook. Is is the Thompson checkbook also coming out for Richard Branson and? Jeff Bezos and the other uh, billionaires, because the bottom of the ocean is as forbidding and hostile and dangerous as going into low orbit. So I don't think there's any distinction. I think all these people are doing this, at least they should be cognizant of the risks involved. And there should be no effort to launch any kind of search and rescue if you're outside of uh, the ambits, the parameters of the state, its requirements. If you haven't done your due diligence, we don't owe you anything. Yeah, one thing Sean and I have agreed on since the very early days of the hub is that the ocean is awesome. And, you know, we're both kind of 10-year-old boys <laughs> in that way. So I think there's probably a little of bias there. I grew up in Halifax. I was in grade 10 when the Swiss Air Flight 111 crashed, and that's a totally different situation. But I still remember feeling that pride of all the you know, fishermen going out um, as part of the rescue operations. So um, I will accept that it's probably not a rational point of view, but I'm all in favor of these kinds of things. Okay, guys, great uh, podcast this week. Thank you for indulging me in my rants on <laughs> Oceanscape, but it just, for some reason, it set me off this week. I need a happy pill. It is Friday though, so I will be dosing myself this evening appropriately with some of Malcolm Jolly's wine recommendations, which are in the hub right now for your reading pleasure um so have a great weekend guys uh, we'll do this all again next friday thank you for listening to the friday roundtable i'm Rudyard griffiths the executive director of the hub i've been in conversation with sean spear our editor at large and Stuart thompson the hub's editor-in-chief this program was produced and edited by amal atter guzman you can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca and finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.